But if people expect to come into church and not know the songs and therefore won't sing, then maybe we need to reevaluate our expectations of what it's like to be in mass and how we encounter the music at mass. Welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast, a spirit-centered podcast. Join us each week for a conversation on faith, current events, and everything in between. Hey folks, my name is Jacob DeRussia, and I am the coordinator of Young Adult Ministry, as well as co-coordinator of the Youth Ministry here at St. Patrick's Catholic Community. This week on our podcast, The Spirit is Lit, we've got a, uh, an old friend of mine, a campus minister uh, from my undergrad, Ken Weber. He works also with the um, liturgy at Loyola University, New Orleans. So we're going to talk about liturgy, we're going to talk about faith and all the good, that good stuff in between. Let's get things rolling. Ken, do you kind of uh, want to just introduce everyone um, and get everyone uh, give an idea of, of kind of how you got into this, the world of liturgy, campus ministry and all that? Yeah, sure. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Uh, so I'm a cradle Catholic and uh, my dad is a permanent deacon. So I definitely grew up um, church, Catholic church. And I also, um, started playing piano when I was about five years old. So, um, the combination of music and liturgy has been with me since I was a kid. And, um, really in high school, I started being given opportunities to lead music at our high school masses. Um, you know, loved going to Sunday mass at, uh, one of the Jesuit parishes. Well, it was actually Jesuit university in uh, Los Angeles where I grew up, Loyola Marymount university. Um, we would go there as a family on Sunday mornings and then really vibrant music as a lot of, um, campus ministries do. And so, um, just sort of fell in love with that was doing it, um, piecemeal. And then when I got to college and undergrad at another Jesuit school, um, they asked me to lead music for their masses and to pay me. And I thought, wow, you can get paid to do this. Uh, and so that was, gosh, you know, 25 years ago. And it's been uh, my career ever since. So it's taken me to uh, different cities and different schools and uh, parishes. And I've really had a good time doing it. Awesome. So you're in, in New Orleans now. How, you know, how's everything going? Um, COVID and how's everything just going with you in general, just in New Orleans and everything? Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a ride, um, like everywhere else in the country. You know, um, we're trying to be real careful. We're about to. So I'm at Loyola University, New Orleans. We're about to open up and welcome students back uh, for the fall. And everything is about you know what we have to just stay safe, and everyone's going to be wearing a mask and stay six feet apart. And you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, I think it's an easier task for college-age students than high school or younger uh, to ask people to stay apart and sort of, you know, take some adult responsibility for, for each other and for the community. Um, but yeah, we're still under the safer at home phase. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not going out unless we have to. We're certainly not going to bars and restaurants and hanging out like, like normal. So, but there's a great spirit, at least here at Loyola, of camaraderie. Uh, that we're all in this boat together. Um, it's it's interesting, as everyone knows, to go through something that no one in living history uh, has gone through. So uh, we're just forging our way through and uh, relying on God's providence to uh, to get us through. Yeah, yeah. I imagine um, 
as opposed to high schoolers in college, they might, uh, might be a little easier to get into the routine of putting your mask on and being safe. But I also, I can imagine being in, in dorms, just in that close proximity, it can be a challenge too. Um, so I was, uh, I was actually scrolling through Instagram as a, as a good millennial uh, does. Um, and I was, uh, I, uh, I was looking at Father James Martin and I saw a picture of you in there. Um, were you recently in the Holy Land? I was indeed. It's a, it's a really great story. It's a, a huge grace. Um, I got a call one day from Loyola's vice president for mission. And he said, uh, Hey, some person from America media has been contacting us and they want to sponsor someone from our school to go on this pilgrimage to the Holy land led by father James Martin, all expenses paid. Um, they want a male in ministry, uh, so that was me. I was the only one that qualified. So uh, they said, we need to know by tomorrow, you know. And so, of course, I was thinking like, gee, let me spend a lot of time in the sermon on this. Uh, of course, I will go. So everyone was really supportive. You know, it was in the middle of the, the school year. Um, it was actually we left on the day after Ash Wednesday. So it was perfect timing for sort of a Lenten pilgrimage. And uh, yeah, so, so American Media and James Martin sponsors four uh, Jesuit educators every year to go on this pilgrimage. Uh, so I was there with a guy in campus ministry from uh, I believe it was Cheveris High School in Maine. Uh, and then a lady from, I'm gonna make this up, but I'll say somewhere in Chicago. Um, and then a returning person from, from another school. But uh, yeah, they're very generous. And we were there with about, um, I don't know, 90 other pilgrims, uh, all of whom had generously contributed to paying our way. So, uh, and it was really cool because it focused really specifically on the places Jesus had been. Uh, so, you know, we didn't go to places like the Dead Sea or some other, you know, attractions that would, that are interesting, but it was really about, um, they were very intentional to frame it as a pilgrimage and not like a sightseeing tour or anything like that. So there was a lot of time for prayer, um, quiet uh, individual time. They give us hours in the afternoon just to reflect on what we had seen and what we'd experienced. Uh, so we stayed for a few days in Galilee and then a few days in Jerusalem, um, just sort of retracing the life of Jesus. And it was, uh, it was intense. It was powerful and beautiful. Oh, that's so cool. I'm yeah. sure. Um, so there's a group of our uh, parishioners here that went last October. I don't remember. I think it might've been 15, 15 of them. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of them can, can kind of relate. Uh, so they, they went, uh, the group of 15 of them, and there was two uh, scholars, I, I believe, too, that kind of went with them and gave them that, that guided tour. So that, uh, such, what a, like an incredible experience to, to go with someone who's kind of learned in, in like what's going on around you, be that tour guide, like tour guide, to yeah, kind of right. that, that background, but also be able to like reflect and, re and pray into that. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, so. Oh, sorry. So, um, no, I just said it was great. <laughs> cool. Um, so with many of the communities I've been a part of, there's oftentimes many different like mass times and masses. Um, and oftentimes uh, certain people choose a particular mass based on whatever timing it is or whatever, or maybe even that particular community within that niche. Um, and we have certain segments at St. Patrick's that like cater towards different um, different demographics. Like for instance, we have uh, the morning mass, which might be more of adults. And then we have like the, the 5 p.m. mass, which is like our youth and young adult liturgy. Um, and from what I remember, uh, Loyola has a very, very similar sort of 
uh, like the 9 p.m. mass is typically more geared towards the students. Um, and the, the, um, the noon mass um, it has a different population, but I've never really dived into like in, from a liturgical perspective, how do you approach um, catering or making a mass that sort of caters to the spiritual needs of di the different populations? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, there's a few different schools of thought on this. You know, one school says make every mass the same and so that, uh, you know, people can experience cultures other than their own, right? So like a more mature um, aged congregation can get a taste of, you know, some life teen or whatever you do. But, um, but the reality that, that we face here and that lots of parishes face is that certain demographics are just going to be drawn, as you say, because of the time. It's very simple, you know. Um, so we have a 10.30 a.m. Sunday Mass and a 9 p.m. Sunday Mass. And at the 10.30, we might get one or two students uh, and, you know, 80 uh, mature adults from the, around the community. And then the 9 p.m. Sunday, as you said, was pretty much exclusively uh, students because it's pretty late time. So well, how I see my job as liturgy coordinator is to get to know the congregation, get to know how they pray, get to know what speaks to them, what draws them uh, closer to God and community, and, uh, and really stay out of the way. So for instance, um, the 1030 group, they are used to singing, uh, you know, standard sort of 80s, uh, maybe some 90s um, songs from, you know, the big name, like St. Louis Jesuits, they love, you know, Marty Haugen, that kind of stuff. Um, and from my, from my, you know, from my perspective, I don't really, it doesn't really matter to me what the repertoire is that we sing or, or how the liturgy is constructed, as long as it um, enriches their prayer and brings them closer to God. So I remember being interviewed for um, this same job at Spring Hill College, which I was eventually given. And one of the interviewers said, you know, what's your favorite liturgical songs or what, what, and I, I, I was kind of stumped because I'm like, I don't really have a personal favorite because I, I, it doesn't matter to me. You know, like if the congregation is drawn to God through Gregorian chant, then let's do Gregorian chant. If it's praise and worship, then let's do praise and worship. Um, so I think fundamentally it's about knowing who you're among, knowing your congregation that you're among. So, um, so in terms of music, uh, that's what that is. And then, you know, liturgy coordinators only have so much uh, influence and power in terms of how a liturgy goes, which is a good thing. That's why we have uh, priests and holy orders. So, you know, it's really up to the presiding priest what kind of homily they're going to give. You know, we have at Loyola some Jesuits who will deliver pretty much the same homily uh, at the 1030 and at the 9 p.m. And it's fine. You know, you get what you get out of it. Um, but then we have others uh, who really are sensitive and, and react and respond to the people in front of them. So, you know, the 1030 mass might talk about, um, I don't know, aging gracefully or, or uh, engaging in current events in a way that, you know, a professional adult can do that maybe a student uh, wouldn't have access to. So at the 9 p.m. student mass, um, I have taken the approach of using music that is very, very easy to learn. And that is how I describe in the idiom that they're familiar with, right? So praise and worship style. Um, but, you know, I realized that any song that you program at a college ministry 
uh, is going to be unfamiliar probably to most students there. It'll be familiar to a certain segment. Maybe about 30% of students will love that song and that's what you'll hear. You hear about 30% of people singing. And so, um, so I'm trying to be sensitive to programming things that people can catch on to really quickly. Um, but I've also come to learn, it's interesting that, you know, in our Catholic culture, singing has always been, you know, an issue. It's like some people sing, some people don't. And what I've learned is that, especially in college, the people that are going to sing are going to sing whatever you program. The people who aren't going to sing aren't going to sing whatever you program, right? So um, you hope for the best. You hope to engage people and you always kind of invite people and describe, you know, why singing is is a thing. You know, it's in the Bible. Uh, it's a way to praise God. It's, you know, all, all the reasons we should be singing in Mass. But, um, yeah, I guess that's a long, a long answer to fundamentally it's just get to know get to know the people that you're praying with get to know the congregation you're in front of and and respond to their needs yeah no and i remember um some great homily based on like some things like me as a student going to that mass and um padre talking about some like our finals this week or something like that right. and and i think another element that i'm just thinking about right now is just the fact that there's other college students there it's like people that are like on the same, in the same path in life and the same point of path in life as me that like we can kind of just worship together, um, which is awesome. So, you know, in, in line of, in, in line of talk, I was talking about kind of just liturgy in general, um, how has COVID impacted uh, all of this liturgy practices at Loyola? Yeah, well, uh, back in March, when we uh, started the lockdown, um, we discontinued our 9 p.m. Sunday mass because students, we sent all our students home. So there was no one here. Um, we continued the 10.30 a.m. because those were all sort of local, um, like I said, adults. But we had to, uh, we went to live streaming. Uh, the first, excuse me, the first few weeks, we were doing just private masses of just the priest, uh, filming the priest saying mass. And uh, if you wanted to, quote, attend, uh, you would tune in and watch the live stream. And then some of the... Uh, Regulations started to soften a little bit, and so we were allowed to have 10 people in a congregation, and that started over the summer. So we had to go, um, we just decided, you know, we would have some liturgical ministers, some lay liturgical, liturgical ministers, a musician, and then that that would leave room for maybe three or four guests. So it would really be the, uh, the lay liturgical ministers and their families, or whoever they wanted to bring. So that was what we were doing for a while. Then the regulations got uh, eased again, and we went to um, being able to fit, I think, 35 people in our chapel. So that's when we went to um, a sign-up, you know, a pre-mass sign-up that we'd send out the week before, and um, the capacity max was 35, so as soon as it filled up, that was it. Um, and that's what we've been doing pretty much throughout the summer. Our first mass for students uh, will be a week from this Sunday, and what we're going to do is hold it in our big cathedral-style church, uh, Holy Name of Jesus, which is on campus, which is much, much bigger than our campus chapel. And it can accommodate with uh, social distancing uh, 100 people. And so that will give us the capacity we need to hold the student mass without requiring students to sign up ahead of time, because that just probably wouldn't be that successful. Uh, students just aren't in that frame of mind to do that usually. Um, we will have to do something I, I don't love, but I understand we have to do it is to take attendance. Um, so we'll have people sign in 
when they come to mass and that's for contact tracing purposes. You know, if, uh, if that's necessary, we have to have a record of who was there together. People have had to wear masks uh, the whole time, except when uh, consuming the Eucharist. Um, you know, the sign of, it's all the same thing everyone else is doing. The sign of peace is, is without physical touch. So you just turn a turn and wave and give a peace sign or something. Um, communion is just with the bread, there's no cup. So it's, it's, it's sort of stripped down. Um, as always, you know, finding God in all things, like great Jesuit uh, motto, you know, God is there. And, and I like, I'm encouraged by hearing more and more people say, you know, there's some opportunities here that we may not have been aware of. Um, in particular, in mass, under these regulations, you know, you start to think, well, what's What's really essential here? What's really essentially going on? You know, we're still coming together. We're still hearing the word of God together. We're still breaking bread together. Um, you know, Jesus is certainly present among us in a way that might be even more um, viable, more tangible than before. You know, Christianity for a long time had uh, a sense of survival to it, right? Like the, the societal or cultural or natural forces the world is against us, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the gospel. It's like the world will hate you. Well, the world is not making this easy for us. Uh, and so I think it's time to kind of dig down and say, what, what is liturgy for? Why are we going to mass? What, what are we doing? Um, it's become more, more important. I think, um, what, whatever drives someone to go to mass has become more urgent a little bit. Yeah, we've been doing a kind of similar, um, take with, uh, with regards to like um, opening up the space for, for the numbers like we haven't had any full um, at the time of recording this um, any full open masses um, but we've uh, we've had a couple like funerals which are usually like in our smaller uh, chapel area but we put them in the big um, big church just to spread people out um, right. and it's tough like yeah um, but it's it's different too um, so we're, we also do communion and one of the things that that like, that goes along with what you're saying, like this finding God in all things. Um, and what, what our pastor, Father Eric has said, when kind of when this first began, it's like, we're getting back to our roots really, like of these small um, house churches and things like that. Right. <laughs> right. Super cool. Uh, and, and one of, but one of the things like, that's kind of uh, been uh, an add on to the, the top of the, the cake, so to speak, and all this craziness um, was, it was, uh, it was this whole George Floyd and all this racial injustice that kind of brought to the forefront all these um, systemic injustices, particularly with regard to racism. Um, and 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 one of one of our pillars at St. Patrick's is uh, social justice. So I'm wondering um, what your what your um, philosophy and how how you incorporate social justice with whatever um, sort of social justice issue might be at the forefront um, for a particular um, time being. Um, and how do you how do we how does that get incorporated into liturgy yeah uh, it's funny when you sent me the uh the outline to look at ahead of time that that one question was the one that kind of stuck with me like how do we do this um but i think our approach is you know i just um saw a lecture by father greg boyle in los angeles and he talks a lot about kinship right um that we should be regarding each other as brothers and sisters um and so it's not so much we in the privileged set going out and ministering to those who may be on the margins. It's all we as children of God being in community together. And just as we would with our natural brothers and sisters, 
you know, we wouldn't stand by and just let things happen to them. We, we don't, we aren't called to stand by and let things happen to each other. And so, you know, when these, these incidents unfortunately happen and they happen a lot, um, we do respond, but I think our approach is more overall trying to instill, you know, as fundamentally we're an educational institution, right? We're a university. So we're constantly trying to form our students to, uh, to sense this kinship with all of humanity and really all of creation. Um, so, uh, you know, the natural and good response of, of anger uh, when these things happen to our brothers and sisters uh, is certainly fostered and it's, it's um, but it sort of fits into a larger program of um, a constant working, a constant, um, it's a struggle and fight, those are kind of dramatic words, but, it, but there's a constant impetus, a constant um, preferential option for the poor, as we call it, right? Uh, and the poor in this case may be um, those who suffer from the effects of racism, right? Um, those are the, the ones that need lifting up and that need uh, our attention. And so living in that way, living under that perspective of always choosing to put our energies into where the poor are, just as Jesus did, right? Jesus went to the poor, uh, find the lepers, find those who are injured and try to heal them and bring God's healing to them. Um, that's sort of an overarching milieu that we try to infuse in our students. Um, so of course, you know, there are times that call for extra or special action. Uh, and we, we do bring attention to that and we support that. Um, you know, the homilies will, will invariably refer to uh, the latest, you know, injustice. Um, but I guess, I guess that's my answer that, that we're all trying to form a community that is constantly caring for the poor among us and for the, the, one, the needy, the ones who are in need. Um, and, and that's reflected, you know, not just in liturgy, but in, in as a Catholic Jesuit university, uh, you know, all of our student organizations engage in philanthropy and, and social justice. Um, they're social justice minded from our fraternities to, to our clubs that, are, that exist to, to be social justice advocates. But um, it's sort of in the air around here all the time. And it's, it's our job to reinforce that uh, wherever we can, including and especially in liturgy. No, I love that. Um... And I think I, as, as you're talking, I'm remembering like a couple, uh, as you're mentioning like about the homilies, I'm remembering like a couple of, uh, like I, as, as I was at Loyola, that I think there was a, I don't remember which, uh, I mean, there's always racial, there's always been a lot of racial tension. Um, there was one where I think Father, Father Waldrop gave and it was, uh, it was on, he was, the, the, the point of it was like, the, who is my neighbor? And he questioned like at the last, it was super impactful and he was like, uh, his last question is now now let us ask each other who is my neighbor he's like taking care of our neighbor saying the most marginalized and vulnerable and then i remember another one father vosik was he uh, gave it i remember like to this day a lot of the the way that he broke down the scriptures was incredible um on uh, like a feminist interpretation of the woman at the well which is and it was perfect timing for um, so yeah, what you're saying is like bringing, bringing, lighting, bringing up light bulbs in me for like from when I was at, uh, within uh, at Loyola. Excellent. <laughs> so, Excellent. We did our job. <laughs> good, yes, you did well. <laughs> so 
Um, you have uh, an incredible voice, incredible music background, um, and a lot of experience within uh, within opera world. And now you're and uh, you also do uh, liturgical music. So how do those how have those like overlapped? I'm sure there's a lot of um, overlap, obviously. Yeah, um, it's funny. You know, I could go any different direction on this. The the the, the main overlap between my opera background and liturgy has become in our, uh, we have an annual, what we call the mass of the Holy spirit, which is uh, your listeners may know um, in academia, it's a mass that happens at the beginning of the academic year to invoke the Holy spirit uh, on our efforts and to ask for guidance and grace. So being in new Orleans, uh, first of all, with its parade culture and it's kind of over the top nest, uh, and then my own background in opera, which is also a huge spectacle, uh, a spectacular art form, to use that word. I'm able to bring some of that know-how uh, into how we celebrate the Mass of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, as you may remember, there's, you know, lots of banners and a full orchestra and a huge chorus. And, and you know, my guiding principle on that is if it's good enough for secular entertainment, surely it's good enough to praise God, you know, in the Mass on certain occasions or when it calls for it. So that's a very specific instance of overlap. Otherwise it's, um, you know, my education, my degrees are in, are in opera performance. Um, and so a lot of what comes with that is just musical education, you know, being able to identify what's, what's good music, you know, what's effective music in, in, in the liturgical documents you may know, or some of your listeners may know there, there are three judgments about, how to choose music. There's a the pastoral judgment, which is most important, and what's best for these people. There's a liturgical judgment, which is what song goes where and why. And then there's the musical judgment. Is this good music? You know, and and there are, um, despite opinions to the contrary, there are some objective criteria for deciding what's good music. You know, we all know music that can be listened to over and over throughout decades, you know, classics. Uh, there's a reason that we keep listening to them. It's because they're just done well. Um, so my opera education has helped me identify, be able to identify good music and, and to create some good music and to, to put good music into liturgy. In terms of the actual singing, it's funny, um, for my purposes, I actually kind of stay away from much overlap because, you know, the singing, liturgical singing, um, is supposed to invite the congregation to sing together, right? And opera singing is for people to listen to. Um, and so as opera singers, we're trained to produce a sound that makes people, the more that they sit back and are quiet and are, are sort of in awe of this, this art that's going on in front of them, the better. But in liturgy, that's, that's anathema. That's exactly what we don't want, right? Uh, at least from my perspective. Now, you're going to hear plenty of, of operatic singing from the pulpit, uh, from cantors all over the country. But my personal opinion is that I'd rather have someone with a voice that's lovely, but with a voice that says, hey, sing along with me, right? Uh, my voice is not one of those voices. Uh, it doesn't invite people to sing along with it. It invites people, when I'm singing operatically, it invites people to sit back and listen. Um, so I'm cognizant of that. And I, I, I encourage that same ethic when I direct choirs and cantors. You know, I, I really don't want a cantor that has a super amazing voice. You know, um, I want a cantor that has, like I said, a, a lovely, you know, even voice that, uh, that invites people to join along. No, definitely. And what you're, what you're saying is kind of reminding me of a, of a metaphor I've heard before, which is like unfortunate within the Catholic church, but um, 
but like praising kind of our, our Protestant sisters and brothers and with how they respond to liturgical music, uh, just music within their uh, worship services. So it's like, it's like um, uh, Protestant, maybe uh, Lutheran, I don't know, um, could be likened to like when, when all your, your camp buddies, you're going to camp and you're all singing on the bus together and everyone's yeah. having time because you all know each other. Whereas um, unfortunately the Catholic, uh, uh, liturgical response might be everyone on like public bus where you like you're just there you don't really know anyone so you're kind of quiet uh, right right I love that right it's, it's too, too too you know one of the things I do um, kind of a funny thing for our students when they first get here like a new student orientation if we have a mass for I'll have them um, before mass I'll say is it anyone's birthday you know somehow I'll get to hey let's all sing happy birthday and I start and everyone sings right Everyone sings happy birthday. And then I tell them, it's sort of a trick, but I tell them, oh, okay, so Catholics do sing in church, you know? So now during mass that we know we can all sing together, you know, but, but, I, but I like drawing their attention to other cultural moments where they have no problem singing, you know, happy birthday, uh, baseball games, when we all used to be able to go and gather in baseball games, the seventh inning stretch, take me out to the ball game. There are songs that we sing without even thinking about it. And no one cares if you can sing or not. Um, and so trying to borrow some of that mentality and put it into people's experience of liturgy and say, you, you do sing with each other. There's, and, and again, and, and, and like being at a concert, right? Like a, a rock concert or a praise and worship concert, people are singing at the top of their lungs. They're screaming, uh, singing. And I always say and think, you know, again, if it's good enough for secular entertainment or if it's good enough for this experience, why, when you're in the presence of a loving God who gave you this voice and wants you to use it, why on earth would you then say, oh, no, you know, I probably shouldn't shouldn't sing that or no, I'm not I'm not good enough. You know, so it's a long road to hoe and it's a big obstacle to overcome. But I think it's worth working at. No, yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Like we all sing happy birthday, whether we're, we know that whether we have a good uh, we know how to like where the notes are or not. Um, right. But then for some reason, once we get into mass, there's like this hesitancy or something that like we might be embarrassed that we're singing too loud or we're singing off key and it's not good enough for God or something. I don't know. Right. And, and I, I certainly appreciate the, the at its best that comes that has to come from a sense of reverence and awe, like in front of God, like, oh, God is so perfect and God is so great. And, and I'm so lowly and flawed and, and I sound terrible when I sing. I can't possibly you know it's this kind of experience, which really has nothing. I may be bold here, but it has nothing to do with the Gospels, right? <laughs> Jesus never says, keep your light under a bushel. I think he says the opposite, right? It's like, God made you, you know, like of, of all time. David danced, you know, naked before the Lord and made music. It's like, yes, please do, you know, have fun, engage your voice, engage all that you have to praise me. It's, it's who do you think made your voice in your ear and, and, determined that you wouldn't be able to sing on pitch. I mean, there's a reason God has done that. Uh, and, and I don't think God minds. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's something to, to work toward for sure. And a tip that I'll give that uh, I usually do is I, I try to uh, sit or stand next to someone who, who know, who has a really good um, uh, voice or, and can hear the, the, te the tune or whatever. And I'll just basically try and copy them as best as I yeah. can. Yeah, exactly. Use what so that you way got. Yeah, if, if I if I don't know a particular note, maybe I'll just kind of like go underneath them and try and find it or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And then that that goes then to the music that we program, right? We, uh, again, part of the reason people sing Happy Birthday and Take Me Off the Ball Game 
and the songs that uh, are at concerts that they go to is that they know them, you know, like they know their own bodies. It's like, cause it doesn't change, right? It's like, oh, what version of happy birthday we're gonna sing, you know, for the most part, um, you know, or what version of take me out to the ball. It's like, there's only one. And so I have actually taken that to the extreme sometimes in liturgy and we'll sing the same song for week after week after week. And people eventually don't even need their hymnals. You know, they haven't memorized. And that to me is when liturgical music and liturgical singing really becomes activated as prayer, right? Like the Our Father, most of us don't need to read it off a card, right? We speak it from our depths. And that's when you really start to get to a level of prayer that is really, um, I hate to use the word satisfying, but I mean, we pray because we want to be satisfied in the experience. And um, and that's really effective. You know, it's different. It's not what people expect, but but if people expect to come into church and not know the songs and therefore won't sing, then maybe we need to reevaluate our expectations of what it's like to be in mass and how we encounter the music at mass, you know, so so that it's not necessary. It's a great tool that you'd use, you know, stand by someone who, who knows how the music goes, but we should all know how the music goes like the back of our hands and be comfortable enough to, to let it come out of our, of our voices, however it does. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I think to your point to this day, like as I've um, uh, kind of transferred churches from my uh, moving from uh, New Orleans to Boston, now here to Phoenix, I, uh, I'm still like when they're um, the Agnus Dei or whatever, whatever um, portion of the mass, I'm still thinking of the notes from like Loyola, just because that was like one of the masses that I probably spent the most time of my life singing. Right. Uh, so, so like to your point that like once we, you know, once we're engulfed in a community, we learn over and over these these songs over and over that are played, and and they become kind of like second nature, and it's much easier and more like satisfying and fulfilling to be able to sing those. I love that. Right, and I, you know, not to go off off uh, uh, script or anything, but uh, it's a topic I really enjoy. You know, I have a, a friend. You might remember Joe Alban. Did you get? Were you guys here at the same time? I, I heard of him. He was like a year before me. Okay. Well, he just got ordained as a Dominican priest. Uh, so we're happy for him for that. Um, praise God for that. He, his approach to liturgy as he's grown in his formation uh, as a Dominican is that, um, so for his ordination and for his first mass, he programmed a lot of just simple plain chant. And he, and I, I have to agree with him, you know, he programmed things that are straight out of the, um, the Roman Missal, you know, we, we do as Catholics, this might be a great secret to, to the typical layperson, but we do have standard settings for our Eucharistic acclamations, like Holy, Holy, the Agnus Dei, you know, everyone, all, most Catholics know, Agnus Dei, Quitolis, Beccata, Mundi, that's, that's the written version that's in the Roman Missal, you know, we also have one for the Sanctus, you know, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts, and so there's a real argument to be made for using those at every mass, because then no matter where you go, right, New Orleans, Boston, Phoenix, uh, people are singing the same thing. And as a kataholos, a Catholic church, a universal church, there's a real argument to be made for we maybe we should be singing music that is universal. And I know it um, at papal masses in Rome, you know, they're singing Santu Sang in Latin. Because the idea is that Latin, while no one actually speaks it, it's the language that if we all sing in, then when we all come together from across the world, as rarely as that happens, 
But whenever it does happen, we can all, we can all sing together instead of singing, you know, Marty Haugen's arrangement of the Holy Holy or St. Louis Jesuits, you know, oh, what version is this? Oh, we don't do this at my home parish. You know, and you hear that all the time, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, we do have standard settings of these things. And I'm, I'm sort of, uh, there's a part of me that really is drawn to that. Um, Cause I think it's a, of use, you know? No, that makes total sense. And like uh, part of us as being Catholic, this universal church, we already do uh, do that in many other ways with just the, the structure of the mass like, and like right. you can go to a mass in like any language and like basically follow along because you kind of know oh time to sit time to stand time to kneel right right all the prayers are the same we say the same our father we say the same eucharistic prayer you know all the all the collects all everything is the same yeah so uh ken you've had a lot of uh experience within the jesuit ignatian tradition um uh, and we've had a, a couple of, we've interviewed a couple of other uh, Jesuits, um, given us kind of going in depth on that. But what's your, I'd, I'd be interested, and I think our parishioners would love to hear, um, what what do you love from your experience? What do you love about the Jesuit tradition? Yeah, I mean, the spirituality, uh, first and foremost, uh, maybe exclusively, um, and it, it, the spirituality that says God created us each unique person um, to be in relationship with us in our uniqueness, right? Uh, so, so much of Ignatian spirituality is getting to know ourselves, getting to know our baggage, right? Getting to know our histories and and baggage, not even in a bad way. Like what, what has, what have we endured? What have we experienced in our lives from birth, you know, to now? What, what have our parents, what's our family, life been like you know and it's different for every person and some people um have blessedly you know i don't want to say easy lives some people have more difficult lives and but god is there um through jesus you know jesus who himself um as i experienced in the holy land especially you know didn't have a cushy life you know life back then was not you know a walk in the park but Ignatian spirituality really gets to God's intentionality behind every, every aspect of creation, especially of human beings. And so when I can go to God in prayer and do the Ignatian examine and say, you know, God, here's what I'm grateful for uh, throughout this day. And what I'm grateful for is going to be very different than whatever anyone else is grateful for. In fact, what I experience as, as a favor, as Ignatius would say, you know, give, give thanks for favors uh, received from the Lord. Someone else may have experienced the same exact thing and said, God, I hated that, you know, like, like, no, thanks, God, you know, you give me something else. And they're over there praying in Thanksgiving for something that I, I hadn't even noticed. Um, I find that very freeing, right? That, that God is intentional about um, how, God has created me, how God continues to create me in every moment, how God is in every moment, um, how God is in our conversation right now and is in the experience of your listeners when they listen to this and watch it. Um, it becomes sort of the kingdom of God becomes a little more tangible, a little more, um, I don't want to say easily realized, but, but when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, like it's right here, you know, Ignatian spirituality and it gets at that um, by, by trying to find God in all things. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's key for me. Yeah, no, I love that. What you're saying kind of reminds me of uh, my first uh, New Testament class 
at Loyola with uh, Dr. Bednars. Um, yeah. She had uh, talked about, she broke down like the gospels by way of, she said like, um, she explained it in the sense that like, okay, so you have say three siblings and you're, you're like adults now and you're gonna kind of explain your mother from your childhood and you might explain her completely differently because of your different experience um, and what you're saying uh, with regards to like our, our spirituality and how God relates to us and, and how we can break that down with Ignatian tradition. We like, we might relate to God in a different way. We might pray um, and give thanks to God for different things based on kind of our own experiences and what. Right. Right. And then that, that frees us from feeling like we have to conform to um, really, you know, prayer forms or, or other kinds of, um, dogmatic things that that really just don't feel great to us not you know church teaching uh, we're always praying for the, the wisdom to understand the, the teaching of the church but um you know if if say you know a 40-day consecration to our blessed lady is not something that resonates with me in terms of prayer in terms of something that really brings me uniquely close to god ignatian spirituality says then don't use it you know leave it leave that for other people um it's okay you know like for instance, uh, at the risk of scandalizing your audience, you know, I love the rosary. I love it. I don't pray it very often. I just never got into it from, from childhood. It wasn't part of my family's um, spirituality. Uh, and so I, I don't really pray the rosary that often. Is the rosary an amazing, you know, grace-filled prayer? Of course. And it, is, it has been a great aid for millions and billions of people throughout the millennia. Um, but Ignatian spirituality says, you know, in Ignatius's uh, what's called the first principle and foundation of the spiritual exercises, part of that three paragraph sort of, you know, answer to the, to the question, what is the meaning of life? Ignatius says, all created things, including prayer forms, are there for us to use or not use in as much as they lead us to being able to praise, reverence, and serve God. And so when I discern what it is that brings me closest to God, if a certain, if, if a novena or a rosary or, or some other prayer form isn't speaking to me, then I'm under no obligation to make it work for myself, right? Instead, I pray to God, say, hey, God, you know, show me, show me what's going to bring me closer to you. And, and right now, that's a practice of the daily examine, you know, uh, examining, discerning my own um, thoughts, words, and actions throughout a day and, and how much they are praise, re praising, reverencing, and serving God. Um, so it, it's, it's freeing. And I think for Ignatius, freedom was a pretty foundational goal. Yeah, no, I agree. It makes, and going back to like kind of the, the point that we were talking about earlier is like, are the Catholic church is being universal, like, um, and for us to kind of maybe force us into like someone, like someone might not, they just might, it might be like, walking on hot hot coals to do uh, uh an examine every night for them um whereas they like it's paradise for them very spiritually fruitful for them to do a rosary and like that's that's the beauty of this universality of of relating to god um exactly. Our, exactly. yeah so um i gotta admit i was always a bit jealous that you uh of your position as to, to be able to kind of live on campus and be so in close proximity with the folks that you minister to um yeah. so what can you can you tell uh what what is some, some fruitful what do you love most about kind of uh your position you uh of a resident minister um and being being in close part such close proximity of those that you minister with 
Yeah. So, uh, so I do live in a dorm. It's luckily it's, it's basically a one bedroom apartment. Um, so the school is very generous in giving me that. Um, you know, the obvious thing, like just last night, I, uh, the RAs, the resident assistants were downstairs in the lobby having dinner, um, at six o'clock and I knew their schedules. So I just went downstairs and joined them. Um, you know, foundational, you know, this and, and ministers who, who have thought, you know, anytime at all about what they're doing, know this, that, ministry rests on and is is born of relationships right so we have to know and be in charitable loving relationships with the people we minister among um yeah for it to bear the most fruit and so part of being in a relationship is to share space and time you just there's no way around it uh which makes this COVID time so interesting right so space and time is all on the computer um but it counts you know, so um, I get, I think that's the most, uh, that's the biggest benefit for me being in the dorm. Um, you know, when I first got here, I thought, how am I going to interface with these students? Because, you know, I'm not walking up and down their halls, um, as I shouldn't be. Uh, I'm, I'm not in class with them. I'm not naturally anywhere that they are throughout the day, right? I go to my office, I come home to my apartment. I may see them in passing, but I'm not, there's no natural vehicle for me to spend time with them. And so I started, uh, as you know, I started baking cookies, you know, once uh, a week and hosting cookies in my apartment. And it was, it was successful right away. Uh, students would come over, uh, hang out, even if, if, I mean, I would talk with a few of them, but they would talk with each other and they started to associate my presence with, um, an opportunity for them to strengthen their own community. So they, you know, they come over in groups of two or three of their friends and they just hang out and eat cookies together talking with each other, but they get to know, even if they don't get to know me personally, they get to know why I'm there and that, oh, Ken, the resident minister, he offers us an opportunity to be in community together and to share time and, and a sweet morsel of a cookie, you know? Um, I couldn't do that if I were living in an apartment off campus, right? And students are going to come over. I don't know if they even should. But part of my job is to host um, to host students and to find opportunities to engage like that. So, um, so that's the easiest. And also, you know, because our dorms, no one's dorms really, are organized by you know interest. It's not like this dorm is just for the religious students. Um, I get to interface with students that I wouldn't normally see in the course of my liturgy practice, right? Um, most students statistically just aren't going to mass. It's not a big surprise to anyone. Um, so, you know, being in the dorm opens up all these different demographics of students, you know, students who are uh, atheists or students who work on, you know, college Democrats or college Republicans, and, and it doesn't really matter. Um, in fact, most students that I interface with in the dorms aren't involved in anything ministry related, which is even to me better because this then becomes like a missionary territory, right? It's like they see me, who they know works in ministry, and for some reason also isn't, you know, an awful person, you know, is is, is someone who is welcoming or I try to be, you know, and, and has a sort of sense of humor and sort of, I just try to be myself, which I hope they encounter as sort of a normal guy um, and especially as a lay person, you know, I think sometimes they look at me and they, they raise their eyebrows like, what, what are you doing? Who are you? You know, and, and some of them, bless their hearts, the, the Protestant kids start calling me father, father Ken, because 
that's the only model that they know that fits with what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a single guy living in an apartment in a dorm at a Catholic school doing ministry. So like, oh, you must be cleric or you must be ordained. And I really enjoy saying, no, I'm, you know, what we say in Catholic, I'm just a lay person, but I'm a lay person. And, and my, part of my vocation is to be here and be of service to you all, you know, and, and I would be disingenuous if I didn't say, I live here for free. You know, the college gives me an apartment. So it's very good for them for recognizing the value of having a ministry presence in the dorms uh, and providing this space for me because they could rent it out to students and make money on it. Um, but they decide that the value is to have an adult ministry presence here. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fruitful. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And I love that. I, I can imagine like, as you're saying, you get, um, various vast uh, amounts of backgrounds coming through during during uh what we what we call ken's day wednesday uh, right. with ken. um and i think i get and you could speak to more to this but like it seems like it uh it makes the the church the presence of the church more human because i mean humans are complex and i think sometimes um folks who might not be delved into the, the catholic church as much who come to ken's day wednesday um uh, might have some presuppositions based on kind of what they see in the news um, as the church as being this uh, sort of one one way of being uh, when it's a bit more complex than that I think um, being able to um, uh, being able to interact with you maybe other other folks that are there um, make it a little bit more human does that I mean can you speak more to that yeah absolutely you know breaking down those um, literally prejudices uh, that you're right they get from the media that that the Catholic Church only cares about, you know, um, these hot button issues like, you know, no gay people and no, uh, you know, premarital sex. It's like things Jesus never even talked about, right? So, uh, but but the media really raises these up to the top. And so people outside the Catholic Church and sometimes even within start to get this notion of the Catholic Church as really just about rules and about who's in and who's out. And uh and I really enjoy the opportunity to dialogue with students or either verbally or just, again, by my presence here. Um, you know, I've got, you can't see on the camera, but one of the uh, decorations in my apartment is, again, I hope I'm not scandalizing your congregation, but is it was a gift I received from this same Joe who got ordained a Dominican priest, by the way. It's a cross made out of a Bud Light 12-pack um, cardboard thing. You may have seen and remember it. And I, I'm proud to display it. Um, I don't find anything psychologist is all about it. I find uh, that it speaks to the wideness of God's presence and it speaks to, hey, of course it's a sense of humor kind of thing, but it's like, you know, God can be anywhere and God is in, is in everything. And the Catholic church at its best is a vehicle for, for that God, is a vehicle for connecting the God of, of everything we are, including our humor and our recreation, you know, our beer, um, our food and drink, uh, the God that, that Jesus showed us uh, by his life, right? Uh, the God who turns, turns vast quantities of water into wine as his very first miracle, you know, um, the God who wants us to have, to enjoy the life that he's given us. Um, all of which had, how to say this, it, it, has, it has everything to do with the Catholic church but it's given, given very little press, right? I mean, if the Catholic Church were spoken of more, um, more frequently as 
a place to come meet God, a God who loves us and God who creates us and God who wants us to be happy by serving and loving each other. Um, I think I think we get a, a better image in popular culture, um, but that doesn't really get ratings. So uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoy the opportunity to to break down those stereotypes and to make people think twice about um, maybe what maybe the size of the Catholic Church that they're experiencing, especially at 18, 19 years old, that what they may have experienced of the Catholic Church uh, is only one very small way that they, to experience the Catholic Church um, and that the church is vast. And that, as some of my Jesuit mentors have said, as big as the church is, God is even bigger, right? God is bigger than the church. Uh, the Catholic Church understands God in in only in as finite a way as as human beings can understand god right um we're all human and and god reveals god's self to us in ways that we can understand but it's certainly not the totality of the experience of god uh and so to approach our own understanding of the church with a little bit of that humility to say well this is the best we got and we know it's pretty good because it stood up the test of time um but there's always more to God than what we're experiencing, even in the most vibrant, healthy, wonderful um, church experiences. Yeah, no, I love that. I think what you're, what you're uh, saying reminds me of just this, uh, the gift of imaginative prayer that I kind of uh, learned at, uh, at Loyola. Um, dive, being able to kind of dive into scriptures and like imagine like I never would have imagined like maybe Jesus sitting at, sitting at, the, at the table and just, and when like maybe the language that I would use, like he's just chilling with his homies, maybe they're having some beer or whatever at the last yeah. supper. And then he yeah. performs his miracle and he does it the whole shebang. Um, whereas before it's just kind of like these words on a paper um, as opposed to imagining myself in a scene um, in maybe in a way that I would and in, in, in that universality of someone else being able to imagine it um, based on their the tools that they have in, in there within their imagination uh, piece of frame. Um, yeah. So at this time, you know, we've, uh, at the time we're recording this, Ken, um, we've, we're still a lot of, a lot of stuff's kind of still shut down. We're, uh, communicating a lot like online, um, with our parishioners, with our, within our communities. Um, and we do sense, and probably similar to you, a lot of, uh, our, our parishioners are, are responding with a lot of feeling of disconnect from one another, um, and disconnects from God. Um, do you have any um, pointers, any thoughts, and thing, maybe podcast books, whatever that you could, you might be able to point people to practices um, to, to to find that connection uh, or maybe reconnect in this time. Yeah, um, gosh, Jacob, you know, pointing to resources is, is my kryptonite because <laughs> I really, uh, I really um, depend so much on. Um, just where I find myself in terms of spirituality and, and God's graces and, and God's always been very good to me uh, in terms of um, my own spirit and spirituality. And, and so while I don't have any um, external resources to point to, I will say, of course, with the caveat that we're all in this together, we all started, I used to, it's funny, I used to be watching TV with my brother and I'd say, uh, you know, he'd flip the channels and we'd land on something. And I'd say, oh, what's going on there? And he's like, we both started watching at the same time, bro. I don't know what's going on. So, you know, I feel like that uh, we're, we all started learning this at the same time. So, you know, again, I would lean on spirituality. I would lean on my own experience of, of God. Uh, it's reminding of conversations I have with my dad, you know, um, 
he's 80 years old and and this this has been frustrating and difficult for him because he uh like so many people of his generation uh is used to certain systems and used to certain things being there um that just aren't there right now and uh and i guess i try for myself i try to ask god of course it's all about it's all grace right it, it's it's all however God is going to help us understand the current time. And so some things have not changed. Some things will never change, like God's um, love for us, God's will for us, that we be um, charitable with one another, that we look out for one another, that we hope for the best uh, for one another, that we use the talents and gifts um, and personal histories that we've been given, again, like we were talking before, um, to express God, to build the kingdom, to contribute to the kingdom. Um, you know, part of something I need to work on is, is letting myself off the hook a little bit for trying to get everything, get everything done, get everything right, you know, do the exact right thing, um, go to all the Zoom meetings, learn all the technology. You know, there's still only 24 hours in a day, right? The sun still rises and sets. Um, the natural world is doing its thing. It's storming outside right now here in New Orleans. Um, sort of irrespective of, of this virus's impact on humanity. Um, and so what's helped me is, is to try to take, um, as, uh, try to sort of zoom out and take as broad view on this whole situation as possible, that our lives are very short, you know, as it says in what's Ecclesiastes or Proverbs somewhere, you know, man's life or the Psalms, man's life is, is six, 60 years, 70 if you're strong, and most of that is drudgery, you know, however the Psalm goes. Um, none of that has changed, you know, uh, things are going to happen in the course of a day that, that have always happened. And, and we're also not the first generation to go through a cataclysmic event like this, right? There was the, the Spanish flu in a uh, hundred years ago and, and God knows what they dealt with, you know, centuries ago and millennia ago, the violence and the, the just unspeakable conditions, living conditions and, and raw sewage, you know, crazy stuff that humanity has, has come through. Throughout all of it, there is, as Paul says, love, love remains, right? There's always a way to love. Um, and whether that's loving each other, which we're primarily called to, but even loving God's creation and loving God's plan and realizing, you know, this planet was spinning long before we showed up. It'll continue to spin long after we disappear um and that doesn't mean god doesn't love us it, it means that we are part of god's loving plan that only god knows about um but god wants us still to be with each other um never isolated from each other and to just to just do the best we can and to to whenever we can relax and and fall back into his love into his loving embrace and to know that it's it's not up to us you know that the solution to all this uh, we'll work hard and we'll use our science and we'll use all of, of the, you know, sociology and theology at our disposal. But at the end of the day, you know, we live very short lives and, uh, and we're just here to love each other. And, and that, that has never changed. Our pastor, Father Eric, um, has recently been talking about a lot of what you're saying in like his homilies, like um, that, uh, what we're experiencing now is nothing new to like the history of, of human of creation. Um, like we see that in history books and it's just like, Oh, from uh, 
1215 to 1218, there was a huge plague or whatever. And we just glazed over that in a history book and like right. in, throughout the stories in the Bible and all that. But uh, we just kind of glaze over. But now we're right in the midst of it. Something like that. Right. Right. Um, new under the sun. Yeah. Um, but it's it. But also not to like downplay that this is tough um, and, and we need, you know, we need that to give ourselves that grace. We need to uh, find that that strength within our spirituality. Um, so, in, in in talking about kind of like finding finding that strength in our spirituality and finding that strength with maybe even people that we that we look up to, um, can do you have any uh, who are, who are maybe some of your role models, maybe uh, Catholic or not, canonized or not, living saints? Um, yeah, would you say? Yeah, I think. Um... I'm a fan of Pope Francis, of course, Jesuit, uh, and I really enjoy uh, the focus that he's put on, uh, that he's re-put on uh, the poor and the church's role to serve the poor, and that's that's what we're here for. Um, so I really respect what he's done uh, in those terms. Um, in terms of saints, you know, I'm often asked, as I'm sort of a bad Catholic uh, in lots of ways, but, uh, you know, in terms of having a favorite saints, I don't really think in those terms often, but, but sometimes I do. And, and more recently uh, I've been able to resonate more with the lives of the saints and to get into what that's about. But I love um, these, the standard of standards, you know, both Peter, St. Peter and St. Paul um, because of their flaws and because their flaws are so prominent in scripture. And, and it's as if the Holy spirit uh, through the writers of the Gospels are saying, look, here's a model of how to be. You're all going to be flawed. And flawed is sort of putting it mildly, right? Like St. Paul killed people, like murdered people. Um, you know, most of us haven't done that. And and so to say, oh, I'm no St. Paul, it's like, good, you know, in some ways. Uh, but but to hold up those models. And St. Peter, you know, Jesus is in, in some ways very closest friend. Um, as soon as Jesus gets in trouble, Peter's out of there, you know, uh, abandon his, his friend who was God, who he said was God on earth. He's like, no, this looks too difficult. I'm out of here. So in those moments that I find myself doing that, I think, well, I'm in good company, right? Uh, our, our first Pope did this, uh, Jesus's best friends did this. Um, Paul, who has, who has helped, helped us understand what this is all about, uh, was a terrible, terrible sinner, um, and so, so I draw inspiration from, from those characters that the church holds up as, which, which are all of our saints, right? All of our saints were sinners. That's, it's not saint or sinner, it's saints are sinners. Um, but they engage God in a way that, that, um, that redeems their sin, sinfulness. And so uh, those, those are the figures in our tradition that I draw inspiration from, um, yeah, that helped me through. Can this been a great conversation thanks for taking the time thanks for uh joining it's been good to kind of catch up with you take care